Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following is from a special event at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Uh, I'm going to be dealing with the same verses, so I'm not going to I'm not going to reread the passage I read. But let me open us with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, thank you again for bringing us together. Thank you for these men and their desire to serve your church and build your kingdom and pray that you would be with us here now and, uh, again, that you would uh, speak to us, that we might uh, lead your people and, and shape uh, our congregations in a way that is fitting and so that we might all walk worthy of the gospel. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be with us now and help us to understand what it means to be your people in the kind of churches that you call us to uh, to lead, to form, to shape. Uh, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so uh, this passage we're looking at in Zephaniah, uh, it, it is, of course, is a prophecy, and it's a prophecy about us. It's a prophecy about today. It's a prophecy about our period in history, this period we live in between the first and the final comings of Jesus in history. When Zephaniah makes reference to that day, he's referring to that time when Messiah has come into the world and what he will accomplish. Uh, in verse 9, as we've seen, Zephaniah promises that God will change the speech of the nations, and the result will be that they will call upon the name of the Lord. That's what God wants, is to be called upon in every nation, in, in every language under heaven, in every nation under heaven. That's what God wants, to be called upon in a multitude of languages. The same confession being made with many different languages. And, the, and, and of course, the result of this is what we might call Christendom, a Christianized uh, society, a Christianized culture, a Christianized civilization. God's going to change the speech, meaning he's going to change the confession of the nations. That word change there actually means convert. So God is promising to convert the nations and turn them to himself and Christianize them. And this is an expectation, this expectation that the nations will be Christianized. This is an expectation that is found all over the scriptures. It's certainly found all over the Old Testament scriptures, this view that when the Messiah comes, it will begin this process of transforming the nations, redeeming the nations, of bringing the nations increasingly under the government of his Messiah so that of the increase of his government, there will be no end. He's continually taking more and more territory for himself. So, for example, Psalm 2 says that when Christ is enthroned, he will inherit the nations. All he has to do is ask his father for the nations and they will be given. Now, you know, Jesus might be asking a little too slowly for my taste, uh, but he is asking for the nations, and he is receiving them as his inheritance. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet says that in this new covenant age, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established and exalted above all the hills. So the mountain of the Lord's house, the temple will be lifted up high, and Isaiah says all nations shall flow to it. Many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So you have this picture that Isaiah draws of many Gentile nations streaming into the temple to worship God. Much like what you have in Zephaniah. Uh, we've got this picture of the nations being converted. Isaiah 19 is a really interesting one. It says that in the future, cities of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. Cities of Egypt will have their 
language changed to the language of Canaan. And I don't think that means that Egyptians will start to speak Hebrew, but I think what it means is just what we've seen in Zephaniah. Egyptians will confess faith in Israel's God. They will confess in their own tongue, Jesus is Lord. Uh, that's really what Isaiah is, is getting at. They'll cry out to the Lord. Uh, um, in fact, actually, it's interesting. In Isaiah 19, uh, it says not only will these Egyptians cry out to the Lord and, uh, and offer him sacrifice, not only will they speak the language of Canaan, but Isaiah says Assyria will join in. Assyria, like Egypt, will be converted. The question for us is how will this come to pass? If the nations are going to be converted, if the Gentile nations are going to be gospelized, if you will, if they're going to be discipled and transformed as is promised again and again, how will God do this? We know that ultimately it happens through the death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. But what means does God use to further the reign of Jesus in the world? That's the question. How will God do this? How will God take the good news of Messiah's kingdom into the nations to convert them? How will he make the nations Christ's disciples? How will he make the nations Christ's inheritance? How will he fill the nations with his worshipers? And the answer Zephaniah gives, as we're going to see in just a moment, is the church. The answer to that question is the church. God will use the church to grow the church. God will use the church to disciple and convert the nations. The church grows through the ministry of the church. When the people of God are faithful, the church grows. And the church gobbles up more and more territory in the nations. God's going to use his church to convert the nations, to change the nations. And of course, this would not have come as any surprise to Zephaniah's original audience. They knew or should have known that God had set the people of Israel apart to be his missionary people. And through them, he was going to reach the nations. In fact, God had situated Judah. He had strategically placed Judah at the crossroads of the world. So that while there were certainly times when Israel was called to go to the nations, think of uh, Jonah, for example, uh, Israel constantly had the nations coming to her, uh, passing through her own territory. If you, if you look at a map, you can see this. God placed his people, Israel, at what you could say is the heart of the ancient world. So, for example, any ancient caravan traveling between Europe, Asia, and Africa would have to go through Israel. Uh, so strangers were constantly passing through the land where God's people Well, God put Israel at the center of the world so that his holy nation could bear witness to all the other nations of the world. They could be a nation of priests ministering to the Gentile nations. And Moses taught this to Israel. Moses said to the people of Israel, you are to be a missionary people. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses tells the people to be careful to obey all of God's commandments And he says, when the nations around see you, when they see an obedient Israel, they'll be amazed and they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation has a God so near to it? What other nation has such laws and statutes as these? When they embody the law in the way they live, the nations would see that and they would be drawn to it. Now, of course, Israel failed in this mission. But that was the mission. That's what Israel was all about. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah points to the same reality. In Isaiah chapter 60, he commands Israel to arise 
and shine. The people of God were to be the light of the world, shining God's love and God's wisdom into the world, drawing the nations the same way a moth is drawn to a a, a nightlight, so it would be with Israel and the nations. Israel was a missional people. Israel had a missionary purpose from the very beginning. And of course, all of this can be traced back to God's original call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God blesses Abraham and all those things the people at the Tower of Babel wanted. God says he'll give to Abraham. They wanted to make their name great. God says to Abraham, I'll make your name great. All those things they wanted at Babel, God promises to Abraham. But it's very interesting. God blesses Abraham, and he does so not just for Abraham's own sake, God says to Abraham, through you, through your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth. So God created the family of Abraham. God created the people of Israel to be a blessing to the nations. Israel's very existence points to this purpose. Israel's whole purpose was to share God's blessing with the world so that through Abraham's family, all families might be blessed. So Israel always had a mission to the nations. Did Israel carry that mission out? Sadly, no. Israel constantly failed in that mission. And in fact, we find that when Israel at various points in her history had gotten so compromised that she couldn't carry out the mission or wouldn't carry out the mission, what did God do? God forced them into exile where they became missionaries whether they wanted to be or not because he sent them out to where uh, they would be dwelling in pagan lands with pagan neighbors. Now, Jeremiah made a promise to the exiles. He said, there's going to come a day where no longer will you have to say to your neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. There's going to come a day where your evangelism of your pagan neighbors in exile is so successful you won't have to evangelize anymore because, hey, everybody's going to already be converted. That's the promise. Okay, That missionary purpose will be fulfilled. But you see this, uh, this could not be taught any more clearly that Israel had a missionary purpose. Israel failed in that mission, but the mission was clear. She was supposed to minister to the other nations. All too often, she became like the other nations. The church has now inherited Israel's mission, and we've inherited Israel's promises. All those promises I've been describing, they now belong to the church. The church is the new Israel. We are the true family of Abraham, blessed in order to be a blessing. We are the Israel of God. We are called to arise and be the light of the world, to carry God's love and wisdom to the world. God's plan for the nations now flows through his church. God's promise to convert the families and peoples of the world will happen through the ministry of his church. And Zephaniah shows us how God will do it. Zephaniah 3.9, there God says he will convert the nations to a pure speech and a pure confession. And then in verses 10 through 14, Zephaniah shows us how it will happen. This, you could say, is God's missionary strategy for his people. Here's the question. And all of us who are leaders in the church, pastors and elders in the church, we need to be asking this question. What kind of church does God use to fulfill his promises? What kind of church does God use to fulfill this mission? What kind of church will he use to fulfill these promises? What does it take for the church to be successful in the mission? Zephaniah prophesies God's going to use a church, and there are four characteristics here you can pick out, and these are very obvious in the text. It's not hard to see these. Uh, If you follow along in Zephaniah 3, 10 through 14 or 15, you're going to see all of these right there in the text. What God will do for his people and how this will bring about what he has promised. So these are the four features. These are the labels I'm giving to the four features that you see here. 
Catholicity, humility, integrity, and festivity. Those four things. Those are the four ingredients of the kind of church that's going to convert the nations and fulfill this mission. Catholicity, humility, integrity, and festivity. You want to be a church that's salt and light? You want to be a church that transforms the world? Look no further than this. If your church has these four ingredients, of course there's more here than any one local church can do, but if you get enough churches that have these four ingredients, the world will be changed. This is what a world-changing church looks like. And again, all of these I think are right there uh, in the text, easy to see. So start with Catholicity. Uh, That word Catholic obviously is not in the Bible, uh, but we all know what that word means. It means universal. Uh, It's in the creeds that we probably all recite in our churches each week. Catholicity is that term we use to describe the oneness of the church. It's the way of confessing that the one true church includes people from many different nations and ethnicities and so forth. And it's a way of saying whatever nation we come from, whatever uh, ethnicity we're a part of, if we trust in Christ, we are part of one body, one fellowship. We're part of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Many nations gathered into one church. That's the Bible's vision again and again. This is Ezekiel's vision. When Ezekiel has a vision of the coming kingdom, he sees it as one tree. That one tree represents the kingdom or the church. And then many different kinds of birds come and land in that tree, representing the many different Gentile nations. So one tree, many birds. One church, many nations. That is God's formula. God says when he changes the speech of the nations, they will speak with a purified lip. They will all call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord, or uh, as I said uh, just a bit ago, they will serve him shoulder to shoulder. Again, think about this. This is the picture that God gives through Zephaniah for how he wants his people to serve him, shoulder to shoulder. This is how men fulfill a mission, right? Shoulder to shoulder, side by side, side by side, we march into battle. Uh, Think of captains on a football team walking shoulder to shoulder out to uh, the middle of the field for the coin toss before the game. Why do they walk out shoulder to shoulder? It's to show we're presenting a united front. We are a team. We're going to work together as one to win. And God says that's how he wants his church to be. He wants us to stand shoulder to shoulder. To shoulder. Now, one of the reasons the church in our day is so weak is because we are so divided. We don't have a lot of shoulder to shouldering uh, going on uh, in the church in our day. And a divided church is an easily conquered church. Mm. A divided church is a church that will be easily captured by the world. A divided church cannot speak to the culture with one voice. Why doesn't the world listen to us? Well, the church herself is really a cacophony of voices. So even if we had a civil magistrate that wanted to listen to the church, how would that happen in our day? We don't have a way to uh, present a, a, a singular voice. We've got a cacophony of voices that really get in the way of the truth. Now, obviously, this does not mean we just jettison all our theological and liturgical differences with other Christians. Any unity worth having is going to be a unity grounded in the truth, grounded in Scripture, That means unity will be hard to come by. It's not easy. But one thing I think we can say is that there are many divisions among Christians. So uh, there are many divisions among Christians, and I would say especially arising within American history, that have been unnecessary and counterproductive and have weakened the Christian witness in our land. Zephaniah tells us God's plan for the church is Catholicity. God's plan for the church is 
unity. That we would serve one God shoulder to shoulder. That we would serve God as one shoulder to shoulder. Paul in Philippians 1 calls on the Christians in Philippi to contend as one man for the gospel. To contend as one shoulder to shoulder, like we're one man. Jesus prays for this kind of unity in John chapter 17. He prays that all of his disciples would be one, even as the Father and Son are one. That when we are one, we in some way are manifesting the unity of Father and Son. Uh, Jesus even goes on to say that through the oneness of his people, the world will come to know that he has been sent by the Father. Again, Catholicity is vital to mission. Zephaniah shows us that. Jesus' prayer shows us that. Remember the background to Zephaniah's prophecy is the Tower of Babel incident. And remember what God said in Genesis chapter 11. I made reference to this last time, but let me mention it again. When God comes down to get a good look at their tower and he sees they really are united, he says, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Now, we could say that's hyperbolic language. That's exaggerated language. But here's the point. If pagans who are united together have great power, how much more is that true of the people of God? I'll just tell you this. You know how um, anti-Christians in our country got our... Uh, our marriage law, well, it's the Supreme Court ruling, but how they actually got the culture to change on marriage. You know how anti-Christians in our culture did that? They got together, they united, and quite frankly, they worked shoulder to shoulder to make it happen. They had a mission and they accomplished it because they, they set aside a lot of differences to work together to corrupt the institution of marriage in our culture. And they accomplished it. Okay? That's what pagans can do. That's what anti-Christians can do when they are united. They can do a lot of damage when they're united. When pagans get together and pool their power and decide to work together, they can accomplish a whole, whole lot. But I tell you this, when God's people get together and decide to work shoulder to shoulder, we can do far, far, far more. Far more. Problem is, we're not doing that right now. If pagans who are united have great power, how much more would that be true of the people of God when we are united? A united church can do anything it proposes to do. A united church can uh, do anything it proposes to do, including discipling the nations, including uh, restoring what marriage is, including protecting the unborn, uh, including establishing Christian schools and universities that would become the bedrock of a new Christian civilization. A united church can do those things. A divided church cannot. The unity Zephaniah calls here is especially manifested in worship. Uh, Christians from uh, different nations will obviously use their unique languages to worship the same God, but we'll be confessing the same truth. That's really what God is aiming at, for us to confess the same truth in a multitude of languages. That's God's global plan for his people. Verse 10 makes this clear. It says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, or beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. So this is going deep into the heart of Africa, Worshippers shall bring my offering. Zephaniah is saying, Gentiles in faraway places will worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. They'll join their sacrifices to the sacrifices of the people of Israel, and they will worship the same God together. The goal of God's redemptive acts is always worship. And ultimately, if we're going to manifest this unity, it's going to be a liturgical unity. God redeems a people in order that he might have a worshiping community. God redeems in order to form a worshiping community. Remember the Exodus? 
Remember the Exodus and what Moses said to Pharaoh? Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go. Why? Why let the people go? Well, Moses says, so we can go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God, that we might worship God together. Redemption leads to worship. It's always that way. God redeems us to make us into a community of worshipers. That's what Zephaniah is talking about here. United and universal worship is God's goal for the human race. For us to all worship God, many different nations worshiping the one God together. So one speech, calling upon the Lord together with the same confession. One shoulder, working together as a team because there is strength and unity. One offering, united in worship so that the whole earth is as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the hope. We'll go on to verses 11 and 12 here. Uh, You have worship. You have this Catholicity expressed in worship. Uh, especially. Verses 11 and 12, we see the church God will use to fulfill Zephaniah's vision of the future is a church purified from all pride. Uh, We could say it is a church characterized by humility. Uh, God says he will cut off the proud here. He will excommunicate the the prideful from their community. He will cast away the proud so a humble church remains. Look at verse 11 here. God says his people will not be put to shame in that day. Why? Because God will remove the proud and arrogant so they will no longer be haughty in his holy mountain. God despises pride. God despises arrogance. Instead, as verse 12 says, God will make them a humble and lowly people who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. For the church to have success, she has to be purged of pride. Arrogance gets in the way of the church's mission. Pride corrupts everything that is good. Pride corrupts worship. Pride divides people from one another. Pride is a form of idolatry. Again, remember, the Tower of Babel was all about pride. It was all about human hubris. It was all about human arrogance. Man making his own name great. Man building his own stairway to heaven. Humility by contrast, opens the door to receiving everything good as a gift. Humility means you acknowledge who God is as creator and redeemer and who you are as a dependent creature and a helpless sinner. Whereas pride closes the door to grace, the the prideful cannot receive grace, humility opens the door to grace. When you are humble, grace will flow to you. The humble man casts himself upon God's mercy. He confesses his sin. He seeks forgiveness. The humble man pursues holiness because he knows God's way are best. He does not trust his own understanding. He does not lean upon his own wisdom. He pursues holiness because he knows God's commandments and righteousness. Uh, God's commandments are the way of righteousness and the way of life. Uh, He's not wise in his own eyes. He's humble before the word of God. He's open to correction and guidance from outside of himself. What kind of church will God use to change the nations? Certainly a confident church, but not a church that's confidence arises from its own strength or its own perceived wisdom. The kind of church God will use to reach the nations will be a humble church, a church that knows its utter dependence upon the grace and mercy of God. Because humility, again, I said it's the key to to opening the door to grace. Well, humility also in a way is the key to Holiness, humility, and holiness go together. And again, Zephaniah shows us this is true. Uh, The arrogant deny that they have any shame. Uh, The arrogant say, we don't need forgiveness. We don't need God's help. 
the arrogant uh, are, uh, are in denial about their shame. They say we have no shame, but the reality is they are full of shame. They will be brought to shame. But God says the humble will never be put to shame. In fact, God will exalt the humble. Zephaniah says the humble will trust in the name of the Lord. They will seek refuge in him. They will be hidden in the Lord so that judgment cannot come upon them. There's that theme again of being hidden in the Lord. Zephaniah is describing a people who are free from all guilt and all shame. Down in verse 15, the Lord says he will take away all the judgments against his people. He says their guilt uh, will be removed from them. When you are guilty, that means you deserve punishment. We can say objectively, when you are guilty, justice requires your condemnation. Here, God says to his people who humbly cry out to him, God says he will take away the judgments against them. Yes, you are guilty as charged, but God's going to clear your name because in his mercy, he will provide a substitute who will take the punishment that we deserve. He will bear that guilt on our behalf. But God says he will also take away our shame. Shame can be distinguished from guilt. Shame and guilt often go together. They're certainly closely connected. Uh, But you can think of it this way. Guilt is outside of you. It has to do with your legal standing, say, in a court. Shame is what takes place inside of you. Guilt is concerned with the legal consequences of sin. Shame is what arises from all the ways that we have sinned and all the ways we've been sinned against and the impact of that sin upon us, the baggage that we now carry because of that sin, ways we've sinned or ways we've been sinned against, all of those scars, not just on your body perhaps, but on your soul, all of those soul scars, that's your shame. Uh, All of that mental, psychological, emotional baggage you carry, that constitutes your shame. God promises to take away guilt and to take away shame. Shame, of course, traces all the way back to Adam and Eve, Uh, They brought shame upon themselves before the fall. They were naked before one another without shame. Now there is uh, shame associated with their nakedness before one another. We who live downstream from Adam and Eve, we have uh, in some way inherited their shame, their guilt and their shame have come to us. Adam and Eve tried to hide their shame once they sinned against God, but of course they could not. We've inherited that shame and we add to it Uh, with our own shameful acts. But God says here in Zephaniah, he will take that shame away. He will make us a people who are free from shame. He'll remove the shame. The humble will have their shame covered. Fig leaves couldn't do it, but Christ can. See, the Lord is determined to have a humble and holy people for himself. That means a people who are free from guilt because they've been cleared, they've been forgiven, and a people who are free from shame because they've had their shame covered with the glory of Christ. What else characterizes the humble here? Uh, The humble man, of course, learns to hate his sin. In fact, I would say he learns to hate his sin more than anybody else's sin. The humble man is repentant. Uh, He boasts, yes, but he boasts in the Lord, not in himself. The humble man is proud, but he's proud of Jesus, not his own accomplishments. The humble man is proud of what Jesus has done, not what he does. That's where humility Uh, begins and how it manifests itself. He acknowledges openly his utter dependence upon the Lord's mercy. He trusts in the Lord. The humble man seeks to make the Lord's name great. And so in return, the Lord makes his name great. The proud man does not, the humble man does not exalt himself. That's what the proud man does. The humble man does not exalt himself. He waits for the Lord to exalt him. 
Zephaniah is telling us here, the church that changes the world will be a humble church. This might seem counterintuitive. Some people think, oh, it's going to be a, you know, a, 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 a prideful, arrogant church that accomplishes a great deal. Do not confuse uh, the self-confidence that arises from humility with the kind of pseudo-confidence that arises from, uh, from, the, from being prideful. If you're humble, you will be confident. Humility and confidence go together. But your confidence finds its source in a different place. Your, your, your confidence arises from a different source. Zephaniah here is telling us the church that changes the world will be a humble church. Humility is not weakness. Rather, humility produces true strength and true resilience, true grit, true courage. God promises to preserve the humble. He promises to remove the proud. He exalts the humble and he shames the proud. Humility is a key in making the church effective in her mission. And so humility gives rise to integrity. This would be the third key, verse 13. They, that is the people that God will purify and purge, they will do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. I would summarize this by calling this integrity. Uh, It has to do with the way we live flowing out of our humility. A church that participates in the injustices of the world will never be effective in transforming the world. And this is why the the, the church must stand against those injustices in the world. Injustice here has to do with any kind of unrighteousness. That is, anything, whether in our public or private lives, that is contrary to God's word. Churches that are compromised with the world cannot change the world. That's the bottom line here. And let's be honest, all too often the influence influence flows in the wrong direction. Instead of the church discipling the nation, the nation disciples the church. Instead of the church discipling the city, the city disciples the church. A group of Christians set up, they say, we're going to change the city. And what happens is the city ends up changing them instead. Uh, All too often, that is the story. And the church becomes worldly. The salt loses its saltiness. The light that is supposed to shine uh, out through the church becomes dim. And that influence flows in the wrong direction. Now, obviously, this is the case with mainline, liberal, progressive churches that are overrun with worldliness. You know, there's a rainbow flag hanging out front. Uh, or they got a BLM flag out front, that is a good sign that the world has won that battle with the church. The world has conquered the church instead of the church conquering the world in that case. That's obvious. But what maybe is not so obvious to us is that even theologically conservative and historically reformed churches can be overrun with worldliness too. It might be more subtle, maybe more privatized. There's not a rainbow flag flying out front. But worldliness still creeps into our congregations, into our lives. And so in our entertainment or our social media use or our tendency, even among conservative people, to amuse ourselves to death, as it were, uh, our immodest dress, immodest dress on the part of our, our, our ladies, foul language, our gossip, our lies, our discomfort with the Bible's teachings on men, women, and sex or other controversial topics, our cowardice when it comes to teaching and explaining those things, our lapses into sexual sin, our dishonesty in daily life, uh, our uh, foolish stewardship of resources God has entrusted to us, our laziness, our misuse of alcohol, our greed that perverts tithing, that perverts generosity, on and on I could go. It is very easy for churches that are full of 
conservative Christian people to actually lack integrity, to actually lack this kind of integrity. Our churches, you know, my church, your church, our churches are not immune to any of these temptations. And these sins can afflict us, these sins can impact us and cause us to lapse into worldliness uh, often without us really detecting these things or dealing with them in the way that we should. Zephaniah says, if a church is going to play its part in converting the nations, it must reject hypocrisy, it must have integrity. And I put those two as opposites, integrity and hypocrisy. When we are what we say we are, that's integrity. When we're not what we say we are, that's hypocrisy. And it's interesting, as as Zephaniah unpacks this in verse 13, he returns to the issue of speech. Our words are a great test of our integrity because our words really reveal whether or not we have self-control, whether or not we have self-discipline. That will be seen in our speech. The Lord will purify their speech so they will speak no lies, Zephaniah says. There's no deceit found in their mouths. That is to say, they will speak the truth about God. They'll no longer exchange God's truth for Satan's lies. They'll speak God's truth to one another in love. Zephaniah saw mouths that were once full of blasphemy praising him, praising the Lord. That's what Zephaniah is aiming at. That's the goal. Mouths that once blasphemed against the Lord, now praising the Lord. But a mouth that does that has to be a mouth that is full of truth in all of life. Okay? You know, James says this. We should not take the mouth that we use to praise God and then use that same tongue to curse our neighbor. That just should not be. God transforms the tongues of his people. Your words are a window onto your heart. What does your speech about you say? What does what you say say about who you are? What does your speech reveal about your heart? The kind of people God uses to change the world are committed to righteousness inside and out, in word and deed. They are people of integrity. And finally... From the end of verse 13 into verses 14 and 15, we have what I will call festivity. And this is obviously the most fun one to talk about. But we've seen Catholicity, humility, integrity. Now we get festivity. What kind of church fulfills this mission to the nations? It is a church characterized by these things, but festivity is what I think ties them all together. Look at what Zephaniah says about festivity. Verse 13, God's people shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. God's people lying down and grazing. Does that remind you of anything? Maybe a particular psalm, a really well-known psalm. Yeah, Psalm 23 is obviously in the background here. Uh, Psalm 23 is in the background of this prophecy. He's saying that we will be safe and secure because God is with us. We'll be like grazing sheep. When those sheep are grazing, they don't have to worry about the wolf because the shepherd is out there to protect them. And so they can graze and they can enjoy that safety and that security. We're like grazing sheep because the Lord is our shepherd. We are the people of his flock, the sheep of his pasture. He's going to protect us and provide for us. We've got total security in God's love because God's jealous love has claimed us for himself. We can take great comfort in his care for us. Uh, One very common picture that you have in the Old Testament prophets is that of God's people living peaceful and quiet lives under God's blessing. God's people enjoying his gifts, God's people being contented, God's people being granted great prosperity. I think this verse in Zephaniah actually, I think it's very reminiscent, not just of Psalm 23, but also Micah 4.4. 
Uh, in Micah 4.4, the prophet says that under the reign of the Messiah, every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. That is to say, this, this is a picture of God's people owning productive property, enjoying the fruits of that productive property, enjoying the prosperity that God provides. And that's really what you have in Zephaniah as well. Of course, we can go even further back, and we can say that really what Zephaniah is giving us here, and you could say Micah as well, but really what Zephaniah is giving us here is not just a picture of, say, Psalm 23. This is really a picture of Eden restored. The Garden of Eden was the original place of peace and prosperity, of grateful enjoyment of God's gifts. And Zephaniah says that Messiah's reign will lead to a kind of Eden restored, paradise restored. What was lost in the fall will be regained. When Eden was lost in the first Adam, Zephaniah is telling us that that lost Eden is going to be restored to us. There'll be a a restoration of it all. Proverbs is really about this in a way. Proverbs is basically all about how to fulfill the dominion mandate in a fallen world. How to take that original creation mandate in Genesis 1 that has to do with ruling over the earth, subduing the earth, and filling the earth, you know, multiplying and filling the earth. If you think about the, the creation mandate in Genesis 1, it really breaks down into two basic categories. Several verbs are used there, but really two basic categories. You could say it's dominion and multiplication. You could say it's work and wife. That's really how Proverbs approaches it, because Proverbs is all about the dominion mandate for this son of the king, this prince who's going to be the future uh, king of the nation, and it's all about preparing him to rule. Well, what does he need to know in order to rule well? He's got to understand how that creation mandate comes to fulfillment in a fallen world, and that has everything to do with a man's wife and a man's work. Those are the two basic categories of life, and everything in Proverbs basically falls under that twofold heading. Proverbs describes certain providential patterns in God's world. God has made the world one way and not another way. And so certain things work and other things don't. And of course, that is a reflection of God's own character. It's a reflection of God's own wisdom built into the creation. Proverbs certainly does not teach a health and wealth gospel, as it's sometimes called. It doesn't guarantee that if you do X every single time, Y will happen, or if you do A every single time, B will happen. But it does tell you, all things being equal, If you live according to God's design in your marriage and family life and in your work life, if you live according to God's design with your money and in how you raise your children, things will go much better for you than otherwise. Obedience leads to blessing. I don't know why the church has such a hard time saying that, but it's true. Obedience leads to blessing. Not in a one-for-one kind of way. This act of obedience led to this blessing in a very obvious, connected way. That's not always true. And sometimes obedience leads to suffering. Sometimes you get persecuted because you're being obedient. But all things being equal, big picture, long-term, obedience always leads to blessing. And that's not just true for individuals. That is true for societies. God's people, of all people, should know how to live. We should know how to live faithfully and wisely and therefore joyfully in this world. Because we know God's blueprint. We know the basic design of the world. We know what life is all about. And so, therefore, we should live lives that are full of purpose and meaning and joy. And Proverbs shows us that if we are obedient, over time we can expect prosperity. There's a kind of positive feedback loop that you get into when you're living life according to God's design. And it brings prosperity to you. 
there are warnings that come with that prosperity then because you got to learn how to handle that prosperity the correct way too. There are some people who do well enough to get to the prosperity and then they blow it. And Proverbs is showing us, don't do that. Continue to live faithfully even once you've started to experience those positive feedback blessings. I think one of the most compelling arguments for the Christian faith is when we are humbly and gratefully enjoying God's blessing on our lives. One of the best witnesses we can give to the gospel is living grateful and joyful lives, showing those around us that we have received God's blessing and we are just enjoying the heck out of those blessings. Okay? Whatever God gives to you, enjoy the heck out of it. All right, uh, That, I think, is part of this. And I think that's one of the ways that we can bear witness uh, to the gospel. So what happens when we do this, when we gratefully and joyfully enjoy God's blessings? Well, our marriages are full of happiness. Simply having a happy marriage is an amazing witness uh, in our day because so many people don't. So many people in our culture don't know how to be married. They don't know how to live as husband and wife. Now, I think if you go back a few generations, you know, the whole idea that you would need to read a book to tell you how to be a husband or read a book to tell you how to be a wife is kind of, just, I think people would be like, what? You know, really? Like, you don't just know? Because these things should come rather naturally to us. But we have so disconnected ourselves from God's reality. You know, anytime a culture rejects God, you don't just lose God, you lose reality. You lose touch with the way things really are. Okay, you can't get rid of God and hang on to reality. Some people, like maybe Jordan Peterson, tries to do that. Okay, But you really can't do that. You lose God, you lose reality. And if you lose reality, you lose even uh, the most basic, obvious, common sense things about the world, like what a man is or what a woman is. And then you have to go do whole documentaries to try to, tell, try to re-educate people on what a woman is. Okay? When honestly, like four-year-olds know what a woman is. Okay? And we have to educate them out of that. Okay? We have to disconnect them from reality so they can be just as confused as their, you know, their parents are. Okay? Look, when you, when you gratefully and um, when, when you gratefully enjoy the gifts God has given to you, that is a witness. And I think one of the best ways we can do this is in our marriages. To be in a happy marriage. I mean, this is one thing I've seen in our church as we've had, uh, <clears throat> you know, especially in, in recent years, Families come and join our church. One witness they have given, when, we, when the elders sit down with them to talk about joining the church, one thing that has come up again and again, and I'll, this is not exactly how everybody words it, but it's basically what they're getting at. They'll say, one thing that we found really compelling about your church, why we wanted to join, is because in your church, the men lead and the women are happy about it. And we're not finding that anywhere else. The men lead, and, and they're, 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 they're confident in leading their family, and the women are happy about that. And hey, that's a testimony. Amen. Having a happy wife, that's a testimony. That's a pretty amazing thing in our day. Uh, so it's going to mean that. It's going to mean having kids who are not sullen and angry all the time, but who are joyful in their obedience, who are respectful in their obedience. That, too, is an amazing witness because, hey, when you lose all this male-female stuff, you also lose touch with how to raise kids. Yeah. And I have found one of the best ways, one of the best entry points to getting non-Christians to listen to the gospel is to talk with them about their kids. So tell me about your kids. Oh, and it's just a horror story. It's a train wreck. <laughs> That's not a bad jumping-off point to eventually get them back to the gospel and God's design for human life. And how God forgives our sins and empowers us to live righteously. Because those, the, those, the, the father-child relationship or the mother-child relationship is so messed up in our day. 
And this is one of those ways in which we can bear witness to the truth. And there's a great joy that comes from that. We want to be able to enjoy our kids. We all want, everybody wants to raise kids that they can enjoy being around as adults. Everybody wants, that's a universal human desire. And yet we live in a culture where apparently most people no longer know how to do that. So having kids who are not sullen and angry, but who are joyfully obedient and respectful. Mm. How about this one? Doing your work each day cheerfully. God's given each one of us work to do each day, and it may seem menial, or maybe something that suits you pretty well. But whatever the case, doing your work cheerfully. Okay, one thing I hear all the time is people complaining about their jobs. I tell men in my church, I'm like, look, complaining about your job is very effeminate. Like, God's giving you a job to do. Don't complain about it. Get it done. And if this job doesn't suit you well, then man up and go find something that does. But don't complain. And certainly don't complain to your wife about your job, okay? Because she'll end up despising you for that. But when you complain about it, so, so don't complain about it. Rejoice in the work God has given you to do. Do that work with gladness and singleness of heart to cite the liturgy. That, too, is a witness. And then, too, when we know how to celebrate the things in life that are worth celebrating. We Christians ought to be the best partiers of them all because we're the ones who really know how to enjoy life. We can see these things as God's gifts, and we can unlock the enjoyment of these gifts with our humility, with our gratitude. And so we can celebrate in a way that the world cannot. That's a witness. True gospel prosperity is a witness to God's word, to the truth of God and the faithfulness of God. But how often do God's people stand out because of their joy? Now you remember the words of Frederick Nietzsche, you know, that great anti-Christian philosopher. He said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. (laughs) May that never be said of us. May that never be said of our families or our churches or the series. May nobody ever say anything like that. May people look at us and say, wow, they look redeemed. Maybe I will believe in their Redeemer because they look, that's how I would expect redeemed people to look. May we enjoy whatever God provides. May we make the most of his gifts. May we be content with what he gives us. May we live the life he gives us each day to the fullest. May we live with the joy and peace of redemption. That's really what Zephaniah is calling us to. Martin Luther once said, A man who belongs to the everlasting kingdom knows all is well, and it is fitting that he should dance through life forevermore. Martin Luther said, if you know you belong to an everlasting kingdom, you can dance your way through life. And that's what Zephaniah is calling us to here. That's what Zephaniah 3.14 is all about. This is why Zephaniah calls us to sing and shout and rejoice with all our hearts, because that joy is a powerful witness. And that joy, think about this, a joyful Christian is a powerful weapon in the hands of God. God can use a joyful Christian to strike a great blow against the enemy. And if we want to fight the good fight, part of that is being joyful. God can use a joyful Christian this way. God can use a joyful church and a joyful denomination, collection of churches in this way. We are called to joy and to enjoyment. We're called to joy and to enjoyment, to rejoice in God's gifts as a way of rejoicing in God himself. And in the end, I think you can say, it will be joy that changes the world. At Christmas time, we sing joy to the world. Okay, well, how does the world find its joy? This is how. Christian joy, 
holy joy, joy that is rooted in the eternal joy that God himself has. The joy of the church can convert the nations. The joy of the Lord is our strength for mission. Joyful worship, joyful singing, joyful preaching are all transformative. Joyful marriages and joyful mothering and joyful fathering and joyful working, these are all transformative. Joy to the world for the Lord is come. Joy to the nations because God's redemptive purposes are sure because God forgives and God redeems. To spread the gospel is to spread the joy. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to show. That's what we're called to seek. That's what we're called to manifest. Listen again to these words from Zephaniah as I wrap this up. 3.14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments and has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this joy that you give to us. We pray too that you would give us Catholicity, that you would give us unity uh, with one another as your people. We pray that you would give us humility and integrity as well, that we may live lives that are pleasing to you, that we may uh, seek out your righteousness, uh, that we may seek your righteousness first. Uh, Father, we pray too that you would give us this joy, that we would have uh, hearts that are bursting with joy because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Uh, that we would be full of uh, this gladness because of who you are, because of your promises, because of what you are doing in our lives and in our churches and in the world. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.